wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. You're here in this Saturday, August 6, 2016. The weather Saturday, chance of showers. The rain could be heavy at times. Patchy fog before 8 a.m., otherwise cloudy with a high near 70. Northeast wind, 3 to 6 miles an hour. Now, you don't hear northeast wind very often. It comes with the seasonal change. We're in the second week of August, and we're going to start to see occasional northeast winds. And... We all know what northeast winds mean from now until about June. (laughs) So it means precip, and Saturday night, showers likely before 11 p.m., then rain between 11 and 1 a.m., then showers likely after 1 a.m. The rain could be heavy at times, low around 59. East wind around 7 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation 80%, new precipitation between a half and three quarters of an inch possible. That is wonderful news because we're in a drought, and the Maine Drought Authority has met for the first time in 14 years. Now, I don't know what they do the other 13 years, but uh, one of the things they do is they measure the, how far down in the wells the water is. And all the wells in Maine are declining. They're getting lower than than they have been in some cases in years. And that means some people are going to have a dry well. Sunday, showers likely and possibly a thunderstorm before 7 a.m. Then a chance of showers and thunderstorms after 7 a.m. Some of the storms could produce heavy rainfall. Cloudy with a high near 72. East wind 3 to 5 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 60%. New rainfall amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch, except higher possible in thunderstorms. Well, you know, we need rain. We're all going to church Sunday anyway. Might as well be in church when it's raining. Sunday night, chance of showers, mostly cloudy, with a low around 58. Northeast wind, 3 to 5 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 30%. Here we are, northeast wind again. And Monday, cloudy with a high near 75 and calm wind. So, we need rain. We don't have a great forest fire danger, but the crops need rain. I've seen a lot of irrigation being done on crops. And there's one one pond that I know of that is quite low because they draw water from the pond and irrigate crops. They have permission to do that. They've got a, quite an extensive underground piping system. One of the larger potato growers. Gas prices. The gas price in Wells is $1.97. 
same as last week. The gas price down in Lower Maine is is two twenty nine and two fifty nine in the same town, Rangeley. I just remarked about that. You got a town with gas prices thirty thirty cents different in the same town. Maybe they don't notice each other. Diesel in South Portland is two oh five. And from Presque Isle to Augusta, it's 249 all over the place. Back up 10 cents. So, in the Lee, Lincoln, Springfield, Holland area, they've had two tremendous thunderstorms, or we think tornadoes, because when you get trees blown over within 100 yards of each other in opposite directions, it's a pretty good idea there was some twisting going on. Microbursts come straight down, and there are large masses of cold air fall out of the sky off the top of a cumulonimbus cloud, and they fall to the ground. And uh, they hit the ground with a blast. It's like dropping a water balloon. Boom! It hits the ground, and it splatters in all directions. Well, the air does that. Hits the ground and, and flattens some trees. And 100 yards away, it might not even be any leaves blown off the trees. I had, uh, I've had i got a 100-lot woodlot across from the house, and uh, I had two areas in the woodlot with just, you know, good-sized chunks of blowdowns. And I was, you know, someday that lot may get subdivided. Not by me. But one of my sons might want to subdivide the lot if there's any demand to do so. And one of these things pretty much created a driveway into in, that didn't exist. There are two driveways into the west side of the lot and one from the south, so I mean, it's got pretty good access and there's trails all through it. But this particular blowdown was a row of trees, not planted, natural Pretty good-sized trees, blown right over. So I'll go in there and cut them up for firewood, or maybe a few of them might like might make saw logs. And then I'll they will, the whole tree was some of them were snapped off. The popples were snapped off. The other ones were uprooted. So I'll have to deal with that. Cut those off and take the kabota and push the stumps out of the way, and it'll result in a in a driveway. So take advantage. Excuse me. Take advantage when the opportunity presents itself. Totally unplanned. Okay. We have another apple seed coming up. We've got one in North Berwick, right down on the New Hampshire line, south of of uh Freiburg. That's down down country, way down. Not that far above Kittery, and we uh, we've got an opportunity for 16 shooters, and I think we've got 14 signed up, and uh, so we've got, still got two slots open, and we've got two weeks to go. So that's the weekend following Labor Day. That's three weeks from now, but. Uh, we're staring at a situation 
not unlike what our forefathers looked at, because we've got forces in our nation that want to confiscate our firearms. And we have, uh, you know, it's that's not going to be taken lightly. During the revolution, there were only 3% of the population at any given time in the field, which since half the people are women, roughly, that means 6% of the men were in the field at at any one time, and it did not exceed that. As well as on average, that was the that was the maximum. The other 94% were at home and supporting our troops in many ways, but they weren't actively involved in in uh, troops in the field. And some of the most more famous ones were uh, were the encampment at Valley Forge. I mean, that was a rough winter. Those guys didn't have many provisions, and it was uh, it was a hard winter. And then, then Washington said, "Well, we got to do something." And they crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve, went into Trenton, New Jersey, and routed the British, defeated them. They said, just had no idea that Washington could do that. And there were ice flows coming down the river. I mean, it was. It was an awesome feat. But when your back is against the wall, you turn. And I saw a quote uh, by Mark Twain a couple of days ago. It said, Carrying a cat by the tail teaches you a lesson that cannot be learned in any other way. <laughs> I just picture that. <laughs> this guy finally sets the cat down. He's, he's going to regret having done that. And it's one of our great writers wrote that. I just happened to see the quote. But uh, the British got complacent. And whenever they got complacent, we took advantage of it. But a fellow named uh, Haynes wrote a poem right after the, uh, the battles at Lexington and Concord. And he wrote, for liberty each freeman strives as it's a gift from God, and for it willing yield their lives and seal it with their blood. Thrice happy they who thus resign into the peaceful grave, much better there in death confined than a surviving slave. This motto may adorn their tombs, let tyrants come in view. We rather seek these silent rooms than live as slaves to you. Lemuel Haynes, 1775. So, there's still 3% in our population that will not back off. And a friend of mine died this week, Mike Vanderbilt, otherwise known as Dutchman Six. Vanderbilt is a Dutchman, and in the military, six is the commanding officer, and his assistant or executive officer is five. My call sign in Vietnam was Sea Wolf Two Five. I was in debt two, and I was the number two man in the in the, in the detachment. And then they uh, and two six was uh, Mike Artuso, the ONC. He was a Navy commander. 
didn't have many Navy commanders, but our detachment was twice the size of the usual detachment. Instead of having two Hueys, we had four Hueys. Our job was to protect the shipping channel that went up from the South China Sea to Saigon. That's 50 miles upriver. It was our job to protect that river. We flew escort for for ships, and uh, mostly Dutch. And uh, a lot of Dutch commercial ships went up and down that river. And it was our job to protect them and defeat the enemy in the area, all that stuff that we did, work with the SEALs. Pretty versatile outfit. And uh, we got... We, a ship came back down from from Saigon and out into the South China Sea, and and they would go out with the tide because a big tide there. And the tide came way upriver, like it does on the Penobscot. You know, the tide goes all the way up above Bangor now to uh, into Vizi. The, the Vizi salmon pool is tidal. In warm years like this, striped bass come up in there. But in Vietnam, we escorted a Dutch ship down, and, and the captain said, uh, how'd you like the beer? He said, what beer? Well, it's you. we lowered several cases of beer for you guys down to the boats. Well, the PBRs would also escort the ship. River, river patrol boats, jet boats, high-speed jacuzzi jets. Those boats would really move in shallow water. We gave them a bunch of beer. We never saw the beer. He told them it was for us. <laughs> we didn't know that they had it. Never heard about it until the captain blew the whistle on them. They said, well, lower some more down. So he, they got some a cargo net, and they lowered some more beer down to the boats. And I had the boats put their radio antennas down so we could hover beside them. And they passed beer up to my door gunners. Case, handing them cases of beer. We're flying along two feet from this boat, rotor blades over the top of the boat, and the PBR sailors are passing beer up into my helicopter. And uh, the commanding officer of the ship sent my commanding officer a letter in the mail thanking them for our support <laughs> and enclosing a picture of the beer being passed up into my helicopter. Thanks a bunch, Captain. <laughs> One of those times in life they say, don't ever do that again. You see, it's much easier to obtain forgiveness than it is to obtain permission. When you ask permission to do something, you're giving the other person power. And that person didn't want the power. They didn't want to have to make the decision. Now they're faced with a situation that they didn't want. Giving you permission to do something. Don't ask permission. Just do it. It's much easier to obtain forgiveness if they disapprove. They'll say, don't ever do that again. There's a lot of times in life where people have told me, don't ever do that again. I say, okay, I won't do that again. But you got to do it. A friend of mine and I, kids, 14 years old probably, my last summer, Maybe I was 13. Last summer when I didn't have a full-time job. And uh, we used to go out to the airport. 
on our bicycles and watch the planes take off, and both of us interested in aviation. And uh, we uh, rode up to an airport up on top of a hill. And it's like the one up at uh, up at Fort Kent. You know, it's way up on top of a hill, nice long runway, and the hill drops off in all directions. When you take off from Fort Kent, there are no obstructions around because that's the highest place around, the top of that hill at the airport. There's a place like that. And we went up there with our bicycles and watched the airplanes for a while. They wouldn't let us in beyond the fence because it was a busy airport, a lot busier than the little grass strip we also went to. So coming back down, we're all enthused about watching the airplanes. We eased back behind the seat and leaned forward and put our our pelvis on the seat and put our feet straight out behind us. We both had speedometers on our bicycles just to see how fast we could go. We went down that hill, and those bicycle speedometers pegged at 50 miles an hour, so we were doing just over 50. I don't think we were doing 60, but, but uh, we went down there fast. And good thing we didn't blow a tire or something. We'd get them scuffed up from head to toe. It just started raining. It's it's Friday. I just see rain coming off the roof. This is pre-recorded. Anyway, we went flying down the hill, and if our parents had ever known that, they didn't. But if they ever had, they would have been said, don't ever do that again. But you get to do it. So, we've got some strange stuff going on in politics in our country. The National Committee staffer was going to make a statement regarding the Hillary campaign. And uh, he didn't get to make it. He was walking down the street in uh, Washington, D.C., Somebody shot him in the back. And, you know, he was had a reputation as being a nice guy. And they just, somebody shot him. He, as he walked by an alley, somebody shot him and ducked into the alley. Nobody saw who did it. There he went down, damn, face down, dead as a doornail. They said it was a robbery. There's no robbery. He had his wallet, his keys, his personal effects on him. Nothing was taken whatsoever. He wasn't robbed. He was assassinated. And the acting police chief says, please, stop killing each other. And this guy's name was Rich, and he was described as a selfless staffer. Now, there's a guy named Julian Assange. He runs something called WikiLeaks, and they try to get into people's emails and documents and hard drives and steal their information. Well, this murdered Democrat National Committee staffer was an email leaker, and WikiLeaks has offered a $20,000 reward 
for information regarding this this killing. And then there's a UN official who who was very closely associated with with Hillary, who had his throat crushed under mysterious circumstances. And now another one yesterday. A DNC official had his apartment blown up with explosives. There was no gas leak in the kitchen. I mean, this was a high-intensity explosion inside the apartment of this Democratic National Committee official. That's four mysterious killings in close sequence who had information on Hillary that was potentially damaging. And, you know, it's it's just peculiar. Seth Rich was the guy's name. I just I just saw his, his name. I said earlier his name was Rich. Seth Rich, 27 years old. He was called the beloved DNC staffer. And he was closely associated with Hillary. Not good. Not good to be closely associated with Hillary. Bad stuff has happened over the years. They had 40, before this latest rash of, of mysterious deaths, the total was up to 47 people closely associated with Hillary who had been killed. Not just died mysteriously, but killed. There's no question about what happened to him. Including the two teenage boys who watched them unloading drugs at Mean Airport. They were shot in the head twice each and put on the railroad tracks. And they said, uh, the coroner said it was it was uh, suicide. You're not going to shoot yourself in the head twice each, you know. Even if it was a murder suicide, one of them, you know, couldn't have shot himself in the head twice. And they were put on the railroad tracks and run over by a train because it was at night and the train didn't didn't see him. But a lot of people associated with Hillary died, and then Mike Vanderbilt died. Dutchman six. A little off the track there for a minute, but on Friday, tomorrow, August 13th, or today, you're hearing it today, 2 p.m. at the Kilgore Funeral Home in Asheville, Leeds, Alabama, is going to be Mike's funeral. There's going to be a lot of people there from all over the country. And the announcement on Mike's website said Mike Vanderbilt, husband, father of three, and founder of the 3% movement, passed peacefully in his beloved Alabama home today. In life, he fought tirelessly to restore the liberties that we had taken for granted. Because of his leadership and the movement that he created, we take them for granted no more. He was able to awaken minds 
into the possibility that a determined minority of free people could accomplish anything so long as they did it together. They did not need a leader. They needed a cause and a banner from which to advance the cause of freedom. The 3% is that cause. Now, there's a there's some organization down south that watches conservatives, and they report, give great long alarms and alarming reports and conspiracy theories about conservatives. Conservatives are good, hard-working family people who want to observe the Constitution and preserve our rights as we inherited them. Sounds like a good cause. They don't bomb people. They don't kill other people except in self-defense. But they're ready should that should the need arise. So, Mike gave everything after so much had been taken away by the illness. Mike had cancer. And he, he eventually died of it. He lived for about three years after his diagnosis. Fought it all the way to the end. And they had a yard sale at Mike's house three weeks ago. Some friends of mine went to Alabama, not from Maine, people that lived down south. And I let them know the yard sale was going to occur. And the yard sale was, was awake. It was a living testimonial to Mike. Mike went to Connecticut when when that crazy Governor Malloy and his left-wing legislature passed the gun rules that they have in Connecticut today, Mike went there, and he published the names, address, and contact information for every single legislator that voted to take our rights away. And the court, when it went to court, he voted. He gave the names and addresses and phone numbers of the judges on the court. And, of course, he gave the address of Governor Malloy's private residence. So everybody in Connecticut who wants to look it up has that information. Should they decide to, to retaliate in any way in the future? Then Mike went to the steps of the legislature, stood there on the front steps, and passed out M14 magazines. Now, it's a felony to possess an M14 magazine in the state of Connecticut today. 20-round mag that goes in your M14, you cannot possess in Connecticut. You can't even drive through Connecticut with it in your vehicle to go someplace else. You have to, you have to ship it, UPS, to your destination. You can't go through Connecticut with it because if you get caught with an M14 magazine in your possession, you will go to jail. So, Mike stood on the steps of the legislature and passed these out to anybody that wanted them. Dozens of them. Now, they're expensive. These things cost 15 to $25 each. Mike passed them out. Now, these were donated to Mike. The donors knew, and lots of different people donated one or two mags to Mike so he could go on this, on this initiative. And he stood there, with the TV cameras running, and committed dozens of felonies that day. It's a felony for each one. 
Connecticut is is really cracking down on the private ownership of firearms. It's unconstitutional. But the lily-livered judges down there don't care about the Constitution. They go by something called case law, not constitutional law. Big difference. Maybe I'll do a show on that sometime. But this is something that that Mike did. Mike went to Washington in Oregon, Washington State. I don't think Mike ever spent much any time in Washington, D.C., but, but uh, Mike carried firearms in places where it was illegal to do so. They didn't want the publicity of putting Mike Vanderbilt in jail, Dutchman 6. Mike blew the whistle on Fast and Furious. Our corrupt Attorney General of the United States set up a program where they bought AK-47s, full-auto AK-47s, from a gunsmith that was legally authorized to sell them, possess and sell them, because you can have a machine gun in the United States of America. You can own it, and you can go out to the local gravel pit and fire it. Just crank off 100 rounds if you want to. One big, long burst from a belt of ammunition. You can do that. We have a right to do that. And I advocate that we have a responsibility to carry. We have a right to bear arms. Beyond that, we have a responsibility to bear arms if we're able and responsible and skilled to do it safely and proficiently. I mentioned that uh, I had to dispatch a deer that had been hit by a car. And the deer was alive and needed to be put down. And I did that. But there were a lot of people standing around that did not have a firearm on their person or in their vehicle. So it was it was on the weekend. But I was surprised that the two off-duty police officers that were on the scene, a police officer and his girlfriend, who both another both of them law enforcement officers, didn't have a firearm in their vehicle of any kind. That's unusual in my opinion. I I figured police officers, when they're off-duty, still had a firearm on from their person or near, <laughs> ready at hand. But those two didn't. They were going to a camp for the weekend. Well, we've got a we've got to stop and think and prepare for the eventuality that we may have massive upheaval in our government in January. And if Hillary wins the election in November, we've got eight weeks before she gets, uh, actually about ten weeks, middle of January sometime is the inauguration. And if she wins, there is going to be an upheaval in this country unlike anything you've ever seen. I mean, Obama was a community organizer and a token. He really hasn't accomplished that much. 
in the eight years that he's been down there. He spent a lot of time touring the world, apologizing for our country. He spent a lot of time playing golf, and he spent a lot of time campaigning, even after he was elected. His favorite thing to do was campaign and community organize. And they had Project Acorn, which was corrupt and illegal. It still exists. They just changed the name. Instead of making one great big Project Acorn, they, they've got a whole bunch of little projects. And Planned Parenthood is, has uh, grown substantially under his administration and was not supposed to pay him. The federal government isn't supposed to pay him, so they launder the money. They give the money to some other organization who turns it over to Planned Parenthood. I mean, your tax dollars are still going for abortion. It's uh, it's a bad thing. I'm scrolling down to look for something. There's a fellow named John Wesley Rawls, who is an author, and and uh, he wrote Unintended Consequences. It's a book about what can happen in our country in the event of gross abuse of government power. The people are going to strike back. When they start burning people's homes, and you know, what happened down in Waco, for example, uh, they shot uh, CN into, into that compound, a large like a big dormitory down there that uh, when they killed all those people and all those children, the federal authorities, they didn't need to do that. The guy that ran it went out jogging two or three times a week. He just jogged right down the state highway all by himself, just staying in condition. Can't sit indoors all the time with his with his group down there. Branch Dividends, that's what they called they were an offshoot of one of the denominations in our country and uh, doing their own thing, hunkering down, hoping to survive. Well, they didn't. The federal government made an example of them. They said they had illegal firearms. They said there was child abuse. They said it was polygamy. Well, it was whole bunch of small groups that practice polygamy in our country. They don't they don't threaten anybody. I mean, people tend to disapprove of that, but they're not out attacking their neighbors or creating strife in their communities. Then there's then there's uh, can't remember the guy's name that ran the thing. Branch Davidians anyway in Waco. They they shot CN in there. Now, CS is tear gas, and it's what they use it to. If you've got somebody that's holed uh, up in a in a building and he's got firearms and he's threatening the police, rather than go busting in there and risk getting shot, they just shoot some tear gas in through the window. Unless the guy has a gas mask, he's probably going to come out. 
or shoot himself, one or the other, which will solve the problem. So they shot C- they shot uh, CN in there. Now, CN is bad stuff. It doesn't just make you unhappy and tear up. It'll kill you. It's poison gas. And if you can escape it quick enough, you'll get out of there, but you're going to be incapacitated by it. And it it burns. Not, not only it just burns your skin, it, it burns anything combustible. And they shot that in there and set the place on fire. So, and a whole bunch of people died. I watched it on TV. Just happened to be home when it, when it happened. And I happened to be home when the 9-11 came and the Muslims hit the World Trade Center. A bunch of Saudis. 17 out of the 19 were Saudis. And they just released the uh, the missing 26 pages, the pages that were redacted from the 9-11 report. And it said how all these guys were supported by Saudi Arabia and all these guys were uh, trained in how to fly in the United States paid for by Saudi Arabia. And we had flight instructors that told the FBI uh, that, hey, we got these Saudis that want to learn to fly, but they don't want to learn how to land. You know, they're going to they're gonna do something. And they, they bought time in flight simulators with jets. And you can do that. Anybody can walk in there and say, hey, can I buy some time on this simulator? Sure. And they pay them. Pilots do it for training, and they and they dump in emergency procedures. To, what do you do if this happens? Well, number three engine just caught fire. Well, you shut off the fuel to number three engine, and you hit the fire extinguisher and, and uh, add a little power on the number four engine, maybe reduce a little power on number one engine to balance things out and you continue on to your, to your destination if you happen to be over the water. Or you declare an emergency and you land at the nearest airport that can take your airplane. You know, you're not going to land in Lincoln, Maine, or Millinocket with a great big passenger airliner, but you could land at Loring. Now, it's closed right now, but there's a big runway there, and you could land on it if you needed to. Explain yourself later. So... There was a a B-52 bomber, eight engines, coming back from a mission over Vietnam, and they lost an engine. The engine failed for whatever reason. So the pilot notified the tower at, at uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and said, say we've lost an engine. It doesn't appear to be on fire. No fire warning light, just quit. So they rolled all the crash trucks out there, and they're lined up by the runway, and the flashing lights are going, and they got all of their foam stuff ready to go on these big trash, crash trucks. And closed the airfield until this B-52 could land. I mean, it's not like they had nukes on there or something, you know. So they, 
F-15 pilot is orbiting around, and they say, oh, we're on file here, and the F-15 pilot comes up on the air and says, ah, yes, the dreaded seven-engine approach. <laughs> He's up there flying around with one engine. If he loses an engine, unless he's almost directly over the airfield, he's going to punch out. He's going to point his airplane in a safe direction where it's not going to hit some city and punch out, float down in a parachute. He'll do that over an area where it's going to be visible and easy to be picked up. It happens. doesn't happen very often, but it happens. When I joined the Navy, I thought I was going to be a jet pilot. Turns out, I was too tall. I could not eject out of the cockpit of an A-4, for example. Not enough room. My knees would hit the instrument panel, and that would be the end of my lower legs. So I couldn't be a jet pilot. So I flew helicopters. I had a fine time doing it. Flying helicopters is, is fun. All flying is fun, but I have a mug at home, and uh, it says helicopter pilots are like other pilots, but way cooler. <laughs> says so on my mug. So, James Wesley Rawls uh, wrote Unintended Consequences. Look it up. Write this down. Unintended Consequences, James Wesley Rawls. You can buy copies of that book for $750 at a gun show. The book is out of print. He can't find a printer that will print it because it's controversial. It names names, and it, it gives scenarios that could and may actually occur. But when the people get irritated enough, they're going to they're going to react, and they're not going to worry about the consequences. There are people that are just going to say no, just like our forefathers did at Lexington and Concord. They said, "No, you're not going to come and take our firearms. Not going to happen, redcoats." 800 redcoats marched out of Boston. And between midnight on April 18th and sunset on April 19th, 17,000 men-at-arms were marching toward Lexington, Concord, and Boston. They knew where it was happening, but they didn't know exactly where it was happening. They didn't have up-to-the-minute reports. The reports would arrive by by dispatch, alarm riders. They they wrote the word alarm, A-L-A-R-U-M. Alarm didn't mean fear or trepidation at that time. Alarm meant notification, an urgent notification. And alarm riders rode out as far as southern New Hampshire and down into Connecticut. And when it was all over, the Redcoats were never able to leave Boston again by land. They had to sail out to sea. Half of them went to Nova Scotia, and half of them went down to Long Island to fight against George Washington. But 
the uh, those seventeen thousand men left their homes and their families willingly in small units and individually and went to defend their country. Now, Washington and Concord weren't their villages. We were not a nation yet, but they were Americans, and they knew they were Americans. And the the constitutional, the, the, the first... Uh, the first convention and constitutional Congress, Congress is a gathering. They meet in Congress, not the Washington, D.C. Congress today, which has been perverted from its intended purpose. But the Congress that they had was was a conference and they wanted to get together the 13 colonies sent representatives to talk about what are we going to do here, you know? England is becoming more and more tyrannical. We can't have this. And they decided that if Massachusetts was attacked, that they would all come to the aid of Massachusetts, the other 12 colonies. But if Massachusetts attacked the British first, then they weren't going to help them. You guys are on your own, you know. So that was understood in all the colonies. No first attacks. And the three percenters today are a loose gaggle of people with no leadership. You've got individuals, pairs, and threes. Once you get beyond three you start to get into bureaucracy. And there's no bureaucracy in the three percenters. The three percenters are a bunch of of uh, a bunch of small groups that will assist each other should the need arise. In Scandinavia the Germany Germany invented Norway during World War II. <laughs> invented, invaded Norway in World War II, and the Norwegians thwarted Germany. They never really, they never really dominated the country. They installed a puppet government in Oslo, the national capital, and they put a guy in there named Quisling, and his name has become synonymous with the word traitor. He cooperated with the Nazis, and he got a lot of good Norwegians killed because he knew people that would would never knuckle under. The Norwegians had groups of men called Jaegers, J-E-A-G-E-R, and uh, they're hunters. The word Jaeger in Norwegian means hunter. But these were the men in the forest with a rifle. Just like that famous Finn who shot hundreds and hundreds of Russians. Now the Russians had to refuel their tanks and they had to eat and they popped the hatch open and just peek up over the top. Bam! They get shot between the eyes by this sniper. He had a bolt action 
Mosin the Gant. Long barrel, heavy rifle. Used in World War One. It's like the Springfield that we had, but it's a bigger rifle. And this guy, Depp, uh, shot a lot of Russians. And he blew up a Russian tank. A Russian tank spotted, they realized that Sepp was up in this particular patch of woods shooting Russians. And the Russian tank elevated its muzzle and swung the turret around and pointed it right up at that at that little clump of trees where where the sniper was. He fired around down the barrel of that tank and the round went off inside the chamber the barrel and blew up the tank. One round. Snipers have made the difference in many, many battles over the years. The reason that we were not wiped out in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, right there, late 44, early 45, that winter, uh, the Germans had us surrounded. The largest major offensive was the Battle of the Bulge because we had bulged ahead Patton's forces Patton moved a huge number of men in 36 hours to attack the Germans, and he pushed the Germans back, and there was a big bulge on the battlefront, and the Germans counterattacked and actually broke through in the rear, and they had the Americans surrounded. And they could have been wiped out to a man. The Germans were really, really mad at that point because we were pushing them back. And they knew, they all knew that the war was going to be over, but they weren't going to go down easy. And they knew the Russians were coming from the opposite direction. They knew that Germany, as they as they knew it and hoped for it to be, was going to be over. It was going to change. But the Americans, with their M1s, greatest battle implement ever devised by man, was turned the tide of the battle. And the Germans had bolt-action Mausers. Very accurate rifle. Very efficient. They had good snipers, too. But our, our troops were better marksmen because they came from a heritage of marksmanship. And the Germans didn't have that heritage. They trained their foot soldiers, and they were... As the British trained their foot soldiers, they were taken out of the low-income areas of the city of cities of England and trained. And they regarded their muskets as a pike with a firearm under it. And firearms were often loaded with just blank ammunition, just powder. Make a bunch of noise and smoke, and the and the natives would run away. That was their their their, their tactic. That's what they expected. They fire a couple of volleys and the natives will all run away. Well, that didn't happen on April 19, 1775. The natives didn't all run away. They counterattacked efficiently. And it's a magnificent story. 
told the story up in Aroostook County at a meeting of homeschoolers. The following year, we went up again and told the story again to an audience of four. The first year, we had an audience of about 35 or 40 people in the home school there. It was during, during the vacation. The second year, we it was scheduled during graduation week in June. <laughs> and most of the people up there have graduates. And the folks who scheduled it, uh, this homeschooling thing, didn't pay much attention to the fact that all the public schools were having graduation that weekend. So, needless to say, that was not a well-attended event. But we did it for the four people that were there because it's important. Three years ago, I taught in six states. But because of the crackdown on firearms ownership in New York and Connecticut, some people have backed away from Appleseed which means that those of us active in Appleseed, we're recruiting well in uh, in Maine. We're recruiting well in Massachusetts because Massachusetts has a connection, I mean, a physical connection to Lexington and Concord. And they taught this in schools. You get on a bus and you go there and you stand there on that knoll overlooking the North Bridge and see where it happened. My father and I went underneath the North Bridge in Canoe when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And uh, it's inspirational. It's an emotional thing to, to stand on that ground up on the hillside. Major Buttrick's Garden and where they conferred the different militia captains got together and said, well, what are we going to do here, you know? They said, well, <coughs> we can't let them come. And they'd moved all the firearms out of the center of Concord out to uh, Colonel Barrett's farm. And that's, they, that's where they were hidden. But the Redcoats never got there because we didn't let them across the bridge. And the shot heard round the world wasn't at the bridge. The shot heard round the world was at a place called Merriam's Corner. It was a narrow bridge that they had to cross Elm Stream. And they had to go back across it, and we knew it. And there were four companies of militia diagonally separate from each other in an alder swamp. And when the Redcoats came through, the Colonials hammered them. I mean, they hammered them hard. And it changed history of the world. No other nation had ever done this before. And very few nations have done it since. So we're going to miss Mike Vanderbilt. And uh, John Wesley Rawls, who wrote Unintended Consequences, uh, I, was t- I called him on the phone one night and uh, to talk about a couple of items. So he, had, he had requested some information. He's an author. 
and authors, uh, responsible authors, reach out to people who know something about a particular topic that he has. So I called him to talk with him, and uh, he wasn't home. His wife was home. His wife was dying of cancer, and she wanted to chat. And we we spoke for about an hour. Most enjoyable conversation. And she had just put together an advertisement. She was advertising for a wife, a wife for Wes. John Wesley Rawls was called Wes, and. She advertised for a wife because she was going to die soon. She knew it. And John and Wesley Rawls was going to need a new wife. Not the following day. And not right away, but he's going to need a new wife. And she advertised for her own replacement. She said, this is what you need. You need somebody that likes horses, living out in the country, ranching and farming and uh she put an ad out for her replacement. Never heard of that being done by anybody, but people in the Patriot movement think outside the box. People have told me that, you think outside the box. I said, it's worse than that. They said, what do you mean? I don't even see the box. I see opportunities that other people probably consider to be impossible or simply not not practical. But I do think outside the box. So we've got an apple seed uh, September 10th, the first weekend after Labor Day, whatever it is, 10th, 11th, whatever it is, in North Berwick. And then we've got one. The Monmouth called and said, hey, we'd like to have another apple seed. And it's going to be the first weekend in October, October 1st and 2nd. Now, Monmouth is 12 miles southwest of Augusta, directly on Route 202. You can't miss it. It's right there beside the road. And it's a good club, nice big clubhouse. You can camp on the property and no charge. They've got indoor, nice heated restrooms, and they've got a covered firing line. So you're not going to be laying out there in the rain on a on a shooting mat firing. We do not cancel apple seeds due to weather, winter or summer. So, but we've got a covered firing line there, so if it rains, you only have to go run out and change your target, get back under cover. Pretty good deal. The only range that I know of, in Maine, will we have a covered firing line. There's a 100-yard line that's covered at Columbia, but we don't use that very often. We should do more of it. So, used up an hour, didn't cover half the stuff that I want to cover, but I'm going to get cover it next week. It will still be news because you're not going to see it in the Bangor Daily. And you're not going to see it in the Portland Press Herald. And you're not going to see it in the Lewiston Sun or any of the papers up in the county. Even a week from now, you're not going to see it. But it's pertinent. And it's important to, that uh, some of the people know this. 
know, I get fan mail by email all around the country. Just to know the main landman show. On the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today at WXME, 780 AM Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, and 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. You heard this on Saturday, August 13th, 2016, and next week on the 20th, there'll be another one. More will be ruined, and the river don't rise. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him.